Hello and welcome to the 34th episode of the CCGI podcast. Our last episode featured Dr. Larissa Juren. We discussed rural practice, collaboration with medical doctors, and integrating clinical guidelines into practice. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Gwendolyn Jall. Gwen Jall is a professor emeriti in physiotherapy at the University of Queensland. She is a specialist musculoskeletal physiotherapist and a fellow of the Australian College of Physiotherapists. Her research and clinical interests are in spinal disorders, predominantly the cervical spine. Her research has investigated headache, idiopathic neck pain, and whiplash-associated disorders, with a focus on differential diagnosis and quantifying the dysfunction in the cervical motor and sensory motor systems as a basis for rehabilitative exercise. She has taught nationally and internationally on the assessment and management of cervical disorders. Gwen has published over 300 articles, 40 book chapters, as well as three textbooks, including the recently published 2019 text, Management of Neck Pain Disorders, a research-informed approach, with co-authors Deborah Falla, Julia Trelevin, and Sean O'Leary. Gwen is also the co-editor of the international journal Musculoskeletal Science and Practice. So with all that, uh, welcome to the show, Gwen. Thank you so much for joining us. No, my pleasure, my pleasure. It's... um. Uh, you know, a, a real treat to have you on, and I'd love uh, for our audience to, to to know a bit about you and and where you're at right now. And and so, can you tell us a bit about your current uh, role at the University of Queensland and your your current research projects? Yes, certainly. Well, being an emeritus professor, I'm actually officially retired, but um, having an emeritus position, it's a honorary position at the university, so that allows me to continue my research interests and, and and basically allows me to do what I want to do, being a honorary position. So currently I'm supervising a PhD student in the cervical spine and whiplash research unit at UQ and uh, I'm also contributing to some research collaborations in Sweden and Thailand. And I suppose the major pro- projects that um, I'm involved in at the moment is to try to further the understanding of the mechanisms of neck pain in migraine and that's the major research area of the PhD student, a girl called Ziggy Lang, Um, but also to identify which patients with recurrent headache in fact have musculoskeletal dysfunction and therefore could benefit from treatment of the neck. And then my work in Thailand is is further investigating and trying to identify which are the relevant um, axioscapular muscle impairments in neck pain and particularly in what patients. So my research is definitely uh, continuing in the the area of the neck. And, And I might say one thing. I know you say cervical and I say cervical. I'll... I'll, I'll attempt to say cervical, but it'll, it'll probably come out cervical. <laughs> that's completely fine. Well, that's good. Well, it, it, it's fascinating that you know, from a clinical perspective that you're really looking at methods of um, almost kind of triaging or understanding the mechanisms behind uh, these conditions to then appropriately address them and, 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 and prescribe the, the right kind of exercises. Um, yes, yes. I, I was drawn to some of your work in 2002 that you published, uh, which was a randomized controlled trial of, of uh, exercise and manipulative therapy for cervicogenic headache. 
Uh, and for the listeners, I will <clears throat> include that link uh, below in, in the podcast episode so you can uh, view that. Um, but in essence, it was, it was a study where participants received low-load endurance craniocervical and cervic cervical scapular exercise with resistance. Um, and it was, I believe, a maximum of eight sessions over six weeks. Um, and I was hoping you could share some examples of craniocervical exercises and cervical scapular exercises, that ones that you find useful for managing cervicogenic headaches. Yeah, sure. I might, I might just step back just a little bit um, to, to really explain why we do the exercises that we do, basically. Mm. Um, so, our exercise protocols are, are based on the research that we've undertaken, um, you know, over over 15, 20 years now into the nature of neuromuscular impairment that's associated with cervical disorders. And I suppose to explain things, we should consider really the anatomy and basically all muscles work together, but it's apparent that uh, the neck muscle layers have some functional specificity. So as a sort of simple example, our superficial muscles such as sternocleidomastoid anteriorly and splenius capitis posteriorly are, are superficial, they're big, they're strong muscles that literally go from the skull down to the thorax. And they have an very important role in that they really do carry the load of the head <clears throat> and, and they're the muscles that really give our neck some uh, genuine strength. But if you just think about them anatomically, I mean, sternocleidomastoid attaches to the mastoid process in the sternum, they have no direct uh, attachments to the vertebra. So even though they're good at, at balancing and, and controlling the, the load of the head, they can't really offer much control of the actual segments of the neck. So in parallel with those superficial muscles, we've then got our deep muscles, which are probably my favourites, which are longus capitis, longus coli, for example, anteriorly, and muscles such as multifidus and semispinalis, um, yeah, semispinalis cervicus posteriorly, as well as the suboccipital muscles. So these are, are short muscles. They haven't got big levers, so they're not great torque producers, but they all have direct attachments to the vertebra, and, and some of them, like longus coli, are almost vertebra to vertebra. So they have the capacity to um, control the neck at a segmental level. So we've got that little bit of functional specificity, as I said, basically between the deep and superficial muscles. So what we were interested in originally was, well, what happened with neck pain? We knew overall that you'd get decreased strength and decreased endurance, but we wanted to look a bit more deeply than those sort of measures. And basically what we were able to show was that there was altered behaviour between the muscle layers uh, with neck pain. So what happened is it seems that we get inhibition of the deeper muscles, you know, such as, <clears throat> as I said before, longus capitis, longus coli, or, or the deep cervical extensors. And then in function what happens is that the superficial muscles start to increase their activity trying to compensate it. And that's where we, we started looking at the craniocervical flexion test to, to see if we could get this measure of the imbalance between these muscle layers. So, so there's a lot of different things that go on um, so that you get uh, not only this imbalance 
between them in, in, in things like the craniocervical flexion test. But you also start to get other examples of altered muscle behaviours is that with this inhibition of the deep muscles, suddenly you start getting poor coordination of the muscles with functions such as eye movement. You get loss of directional specificity. And what that means is that the muscles, instead of, say, contracting when you when you push forward, you should mainly have the flexors contracting. And when you push backwards, you should mainly have the extensors contracting. But what happens in neck pain is that when they are, a, a patient is asked to push forward, they'll start using both their flexors and extensors. They just do this massive type of co-contraction. And then another altered behaviour is their delay of onset of activation. So we did experiments where we perturbed the neck through rapid arm movement. And recently, Deborah Feller has done one where she the perturbation was at the foot on a platform. And what happens in patients with neck pain, well, what happens in normal people to start with is that the instant there is that perturbation, the neck muscles are on, which is what we want because we want the head and neck to be stable any time we walk or move our arms. But what we found with neck pain patients is that the movement literally occurred and the muscles came on. It's almost a feedback response uh, to the perturbation. So, the complexity of what happens in the behaviour of the muscles sort of made us go even further to sort of see, well, what exercises can we do that um, might address these sorts of things? So in the exercise approach, and I will eventually get to exercises, <laughs> but in the exercise approach, what we found is better is that um, if we address these issues in motor control, we, we need to do that first. And then as the muscles start working appropriately again, then we'll start to do loaded exercises to address any, you know, strength and endurance deficits. Now, we use separate exercises because we've also undertaken a, a large body of research that shows that we need some specificity in exercise. So in other words, it's the old sort of horses for courses. So we've shown, for example, if you just do strengthening exercises, you'll increase overall strength, but you don't address these changes in the way the deep and superficial muscles work together. And conversely, if you only, control, if you only concentrate on motor control with low load exercises, you might uh, help the uh, how the muscles work together to restore the normal motor control, but the low-load exercises <clears throat> don't address the strength issues. So you need this um, combination of exercises that, that address the various issues that the patient may have. So sort of finally getting to your question, uh, some of the first things that we do, therefore, is to look at exercising uh, the deep neck flexors and also biasing exercises to, um, to biasing the way we do head movements to the deep neck extensors. So, for example, in retraining the craniocervical flexors, um, we usually start in outer function. So the exercises are low load. And the reason that you need to be low load is that the minute you add load, all muscles come in, you know, to help resist that load. So if you want to target particular muscles, you need to sort of do accurate movements without load. Now, um, 
nodding the chin is the action or craniocervical flexion is the anatomical action of the um, of longus capitis in synergy with longus coli. So, for example, to retrain the deep neck flexors, we'll start with literally just doing craniocervical flexion in a supine position, in a non-loaded supine position, in which the patient's got to learn to actually do the movement correctly uh, to actually activate the precise muscles. The other thing to think of is that um, if you're doing motory learning, the patient's got to do you know, many, many, many contractions. So they can't be lying on a bed all day, you know, nodding their chin. And so we, we, couple, we couple that exercise with a more functional ex- exercise, which is a posture exercise. And so what we've also shown um, in research is that if you actually get people to, to assume a good neutral upright posture, and what we showed is if you initiate that with, with um, correcting the lumbar pelvic region to the neutral position and sort of growing tall from that, and then doing an action that is literally lengthening, just gently trying to lengthen the back of your neck, that you get a really good burst of activity uh, in the longest capitis and longest coli. So in the first stages um, to educate the, the deep neck flexors, we would be doing a combination. So the patient may for five minutes twice a day practice the craniocervical flexion action more formally, but then two or three times every hour uh, assume an upright postural position, lengthen the back of their neck to get that 10-second sort of contraction of the muscle repeatedly during the day. And then the other thing too is that really these muscles, we don't do much ballistic activity with our necks, Uh, mainly our our head and neck are in a a reasonably stable position. And so functionally it's important to train train the low-level endurance of these muscles because that's that's the way they function all day is to literally hold your head and neck steady. So once they can start to work, then uh, it is is training their endurance. And, And again, what we found in research was their capacity to activate and their capacity to hold a contraction was poor in in your neck pain patients. Um, The flexors are actually quite easy. Uh, Well, yeah, they're quite easy to retrain in a a really targeted manner. Um, The extensors are a bit more tricky to sort of separate out deep from superficial muscles and exercise regimes so that basically all we can do is to do a movement that will um, bias really the deep muscles and probably put it a, a little bit of a mechanical advantage, the superficial extensors. So what we do for that is um, have the patient um, either on hands and knees or they can be prone on forearms, whichever the patient finds comfortable. And then you can target so your sub-exhibital muscles with the patient just practising craniocervical extension and craniocervical rotation. And then you can put your big muscles like splenius um, capitis at some disadvantage by making the patient extend but keeping their craniocervical area in a neutral position. Um, and the way you do that basically is that the patient's got to, we put, we, we, we tell them to pretend that there's a book on the bed and so their eyes have got to stay on the, be, on the book 
and then they try to extend, keeping their eyes on the book. And by keeping their eyes on the book, that actually facilitates their craniocervical flexors and keeps that area in a neutral position. Uh, it probably sounds... Um, it's hard... Well, it's not... Well, it, it's maybe hard to visualise what's happening, and, and this might sound bad, but the exercises are all fully described and illustrated in our text, if anybody is interested in really uh, looking more deeply into that exercise training. But, but as I said, what we have done is try to develop that whole exercise program, going from low load, progressing through activation, endurance, um, training and function, and then once the muscles are working well together, uh, addressing any sort of strength uh, deficits, that sort of regime is the one that we've proved to be efficacious in a few RCTs now. And, and what kind of methods of uh, measurement or assessment do you find useful in progressing patients to uh, a more challenging exercise? I mean, if they're in the quadruped position and, and extending their neck, you know, at what point do you, would you assess in a clinical setting uh, that they're ready to, to move on? Um, well, you've picked the hard one. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer the easiest one okay. first. The craniocervical, we do the craniocervical flexion test, and you can um, uh, you just reassess performance in that test, and that gives you a guide of progression to uh, higher levels. The extensors is a bit harder, um, and, but what we find with patients with their neck extensors is that if you can imagine the person in four-point kneeling, so that they've got a book between their their hands or pretend they've got a book between their hands or put a pen between their hands, what we find with neck pain patients is that we ask them to, to flex forward to look at their knees to start with, and then they've got to roll their head and neck back, so curve it back, while they keep their eyes on that book or on that pen. Now, what we find in asymptomatic subjects is that they can extend around about 20 up to 30 degrees in extension with their craniocervical area in a neutral position. What we find with the neck pain patients is that they often can't go much further uh, than the neutral. Some of them hardly make the neutral um, or they fatigue very rapidly. So for progression of the extensors, it's a very clinical assessment in that we look first of all that you get rid of any fatigue that they they can do. You should be able to do that repeatedly. Um, and also that they can then extend through a full available range. And so once they can do that, we'll start progressing them on. But it's, it's, it's a very qualitative um, a, assessment for progression, whereas the craniocervical flexion test can be a little more quantitative, although it's got qualitative you know, elements. Certainly, and, and and maybe that's a good opportunity for me to ask you uh, more detail on the craniocervical flexion test. And I I will also link the there's a 2008 publication you have that describes the craniocervical flexion test in greater detail. But, but hopefully, um, you can explain to our listeners a bit about how to perform this test, and um, yeah, maybe go from there. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's a it, it's a test. Um, well. It's, it's a test of craniocervical flexion because, as I mentioned before, that's the anatomical action 
of longus capitis, longus coli. But the only thing is that you can't see, or as a clinician, you can't see or palpate those deep muscles well enough to really, you know, even vaguely understand what's happening. And so that led to um, our use of that inflatable pressure sensor, the pressure biofeedback or the stabiliser, it's, it's called, because that can give us some indirect quantification. And importantly, it, it literally tells the patient or gives feedback to the patient or what they have to do in the test. Now, why we use that is that when the longus coli contracts, you actually get a slight subtle flattening of the cervical curve and with the pressure sensor underneath the back of the neck or behind the neck, that slight flattening of the cervical curve increases the pressure. So what we actually do in the test is we in the, the patient's head and neck must be in a neutral position. Um, if, if the patient's lying there and they're in cervical, craniocervical extension, for example, you've really biased them against contracting uh, their deep neck flexors. So the first thing is, is that you position the patient in a neutral position. So when you look at their forehead and their chin, they should be in a relatively, uh, uh, it should be basically parallel to the floor. And if you put a line down the side of the neck, that should also be parallel to the bed. Um, occasionally, you need to uh, use some towels, etc., to to actually get the patient in neutral. So, for example, men often have you know relatively big chests, so that if you lie them on their backs without a pillow, they will be lying into extension, and so that you often need a few layers of towel to bring their head up to that neutral position. Um, and then we slide the pressure sensor underneath. Um, it's folded into three, and then we get a baseline, inflate it, that we get a stable baseline of about 20 millimetres of mercury. And the test we do in five stages. So we call it a muscle test, but actually it's, it's possibly more than a muscle test because it also involves some accuracy and positional accuracy. So I think it's probably got a, a quite a strong proprioceptive element as well. So what we ask the patient to do is to, um, a, a nice instruction actually, is for them to feel the back of their head slide up the bed to nod their chin. And from a baseline of 20, they'll nod to 22. And then relax and then slide and nod to 24. So we do five stages of two uh, millimetre of pressure increments. So they nod to 22, 24, 26, 28, 30. Now, what the, the, this is the qualitative side of the test because patients, you, you give the patient an instruction to say, well, okay, get that pressure up to 22, and they can use any sort of movement strategy. And, and the one that is the poor strategy in relation to um, muscle activation is that instead of being able to nod or instead of being able to flex to get the pressure up to 22 or 24 or 26, they tend to retract. In other words, they just push the back of their neck um, onto, the, onto the pressure. So the important thing is that 
for the for the clinician is that they've got to actually not observe the pressure the pa- that that feedback is for the patient or don't observe the dial but rather look at what is happening what's the patient doing to actually get to those various levels so what you're looking for is that you get that nice anterior rotation of flexion to nod to 22, that you get a little bit more when you nod to 24, a bit more to nod to 26, you know, and more for 28 and 30. So the clinician's got to look that they can do a good flexion action and also that they're not substituting with muscles such as sternocleidomastoid or the anterior scalenes. Because you've asked, you've asked the patient to do a task, so they'll do it in whatever way. Um, they can. So you've got to look at their quality of movement and what muscles they're really doing. And and what the research has shown, I mean, the results are variable. People with mild and neck pain disorders, they may be able to do, you know, up to 26, um, you know, three increments, okay. But the majority of neck pain patients, we found that... um, can often only get to the first or second stage. They can do 22, they can do 24, and then they just can't do 26. They either just can't do it or they suddenly start retracting instead of flexing. Whereas most of your asymptomatic people, your healthy control type people, they can do, you know, 26 is, is usually the lowest level for them. Um, and most of them do, you know, 26, 28 and 30. So, the actual cutoffs for the test, are, they are broad um, because there is a lot of inter individual variability. But as a very general basic rule, most of your patients are around 22, 24, and, and <clears throat> the uh, normals are more 26, 28, 30. Um, yeah, that's about... Uh, about it. With the extensors, I've mentioned that before. Um, and also, the, the uh, I just mentioned, we haven't mentioned the axioscapular muscles yet, so I might just mention those a little bit. But the key muscles, we think, are the three parts of trapezius and serratus anterior. And the, the thing with assessment of the axioscapular muscles with patients with neck pain is that scapular position and the look of the scapula and sometimes the control of the scapula is highly variable between individuals. And this is the research that we're doing in Thailand is to really get the criteria of, of what are the things or, or how can we actually show that that axioscapular muscle is relevant, behaviour is relevant to a patient's neck pain. And so what we're doing is not only just doing straight muscle tests, um, but also looking at the effect of correcting scapular positions uh, on the current neck pain and range of movement to try to work out, in fact, you know, when it, when is when is it relevant to actually start training the axioscapular muscles or putting a lot of effort onto the axioscapular muscles? That's wonderful. Um, and and the axioscapular muscle uh, research is. is quite fascinating. Do you, do you expect there to be, and is that in neck pain patients that you're assessing that? Uh, yes. With? Yeah. In, I mean, there's been a phenomenal amount of work done into axioscapular muscle function and behavior in association with shoulder, um, yeah. shoulder disorders. 
Um, now, it may be what they're finding in the shoulder may be similar in the neck, but um, I, I, I'm old enough that when I had lectures on the cervical disc, the lecturer would often put up a lumbar disc when, in fact, the cervical disc is totally different to the lumbar disc. So I just don't think that we can automatically extrapolate that what's happening with the shoulder or glenohumeral pain will automatically happen with neck pain. So the research that's happening at the moment in Thailand is that we're looking at, um, uh, first of all, we're looking at uh, whether correction of a, of a scapular position will alter a patient's neck pain or movement. So in other words, we do base, <clears throat> baseline measures of um, uh, the patient's resting pain, pain on rotation, for example, and then we will actually manually correct the scapula into a more neutral position and see if it has any effect on pain and um, on pain and range of motion. Because you would predict that if it had absolutely zero effects, that the, act the actual axioscapular muscles are probably not contributing greatly to that patient's neck pain. Whereas, and as we see in several patients in clinic, when you correct that scapular position, you know, suddenly they've got a decrease in neck pain and their range of movement improves uh, instantly. And so you would then hypothesise, well, axioscapular muscles are, and posture are very relevant to that patient. It's like you said at the beginning, it's, is picking out, and that is what our direction of research is, is that it's trying to pick out, um, you know, which patients are, uh, are likely to respond to which sort of treatments. It's that stratification in a way mm -hmm. because it's, it, it just gets so disappointing with um, clinical trials when idiopathic neck pain or mechanical neck pain just includes everybody and then you wonder why a certain treatment doesn't sort of cure everybody. Um, we, we've got to be able to more intelligently, as we do in clinical practice actually, more intelligently design our clinical trials so that we have got inclusion of patients who are most likely to actually respond to certain interventions. So that's that's what we're doing with the axioscapula. So it's, it's, it's looking at that and then doing further investigations with EMG and, and movement systems to see if we can analyse what are the differences in those who seem to have relevant axioscapular muscle dysfunction compared to those who it may be irrelevant. That's, that's refreshing to hear. It, it's, it's, I mean, as a clinician, it's exciting to hear about stratification and, and ways yeah. to, to, to you know, more effectively treat, uh, treat patients. And, and, and we've spent a fair bit of time already talking about assessment and, and exercise. But we haven't really spoken much about manual, manual therapy, which is uh, so much of what we, we do. And I'm you know, hoping you, you can, and it's a broad question, but hoping you can discuss your perspective on the role of, of manual therapy. And that can be manipulation, mobilization, soft tissue therapy, uh, and its role in rehabilitation of headaches uh, and, and neck symptoms. Yeah. Um Let's be a bit evidence-based at the moment, seeing that you, you've done a whole lot of it. But, it, uh, you know, the evidence from the systematic reviews, which translates to guidelines, is that manual therapy and exercises and, in, and 
and education. You can't ignore mm. education. But it's that combined therapy of manual therapy and exercises is the most uh, efficacious treatment for cervical musculoskeletal disorders. So I do think it is the combination that is the key. But anyway, but concentrating on manual therapy or manipulative therapy, um, it, it's very effective in relieving pain. And there are several RCTs which show that. I think what's, um, I'm not sure what's happening in Canada uh, in the physio world at the moment, but certainly around the world, there's a little bit of a, um, uh, an anti-manipulative therapy feeling. Um, a, a lot of it on pure uh, opinion. There's no real evidence for what they're saying. But the true evidence does say that manipulative therapy is effective in relieving pain. Interestingly enough, uh, it seems that it doesn't matter really whether you do high-velocity techniques or low-velocity techniques. There seems to be relatively similar outcomes. I think there's a couple of studies that may say that in acute neck pain, the high-velocity or manipulation techniques are maybe better than the low-velocity uh, mobilisation techniques. But I think essentially you will uh, gain outcomes from either. The, the other thing I find interesting is that it probably doesn't matter what technique you use. So <clears throat> in the physiotherapy world, we've got some quite different techniques um, uh, or, or, or approaches um, to, to manual therapy. But when, when they are tested head-to-head, -head, the outcomes are quite similar, even though mechanically what you're doing uh, seems to be different. And that's always fascinated me because it, it's sort of, I think, uh, showing that the neurophysiological effects are probably some of the greatest effects that we get with manipulative therapy. Um, the thing that's now manipulative therapy, I think, is good. Um, I think it's very effective in relieving pain. But the thing that I would point out is that manipulative therapy or relief of pain doesn't automatically restore the normal behaviour or the normal function of the muscle system. And I suppose one of my um, uh, well, well, one of my uh, <clears throat> frustrations of late is that over that many, many, and this is over the last couple of decades, that we're looking at patient-centred outcomes and therefore most RCTs have the primary outcome of pain or maybe the NDI questionnaire or, or in the case of headache, headache frequency. Now, relief of pain is very important. There's absolutely no doubt of that, no doubt about that. But when we think about it and you look at the you know, global burden of disease study, the real burden of neck pain is really in its recurrent and, and uh, progressive nature. You know, once you've had one episode of neck pain, you've got an enormous chance, 50 to 70% chance that you're going to get it again. And, and as I said, I think the burden is in, in the recurrent nature of neck pain. So if we only thinking about relieving pain, all we're thinking about is affecting that one episode. Whereas I think we've all got to start changing our thinking and thinking not only of the one episode, but we've got to try to decrease the number of times they have subsequent episodes or try to slow the uh, degrees, um, the disease progression. 
And even though I've got no evidence for this whatsoever, but I think it's almost intuitive that if we start uh, rehabilitating the muscle system, that's probably our the best thing that we can offer in conjunction with lifestyle advice that will help people better self-manage and, and try to slow this d- disease progression or, or slow or, or decrease the number of recurrent episodes. So that as much as I love manual therapy and uh, I was brought up on manual therapy, that was my first sort of um, foray into uh, particular higher uh, post-grad education was that. So I have a great passion for it, but it's good for pain, but it doesn't it doesn't um, restore normal muscle performance. So I think the message I would put out about manipulative therapy is that you must, um, you know, you must do it in combination with exercise, and we've got to start thinking not just of the one-up acute episode that the patient might be doing, but in terms of rehabilitation to. Uh, prevent recurrent episodes of pain or at least lessen them. Well, it's so important to have that balanced approach and, and we haven't even gone into the patient preferences or the, the, the biopsychosocial approach of a patient's preference. Yeah, <laughs> no. So that's a deeper dive <laughs> than, but, than but, perhaps but willing to get. It's quite interesting in this day and age because um, I, I kept up my clinical practice while I had an academic career and, and over the last sort of 20-odd years with, with the general population talking about activity and the importance of activity, patients usually had the expectation uh, for exercise, which, um, you know, they'd often come in and say, I need exercises for my neck, et cetera, which was a very big change um, in their focus, say, from when you were treating patients in the 80s and 90s type of thing. So... Mm. Um, I think in many cases, some of the patient's pre- uh, preferences are that they, they they want something. They want exercise to do it. That, that's good when patients start uh, their treatment yeah. expecting what you're ready to give them or to provide them. Um, Absolutely. Certainly cer- my practice as a chiropractor, uh, my patients expect when they see their physiotherapist to receive exercise um, some expect to receive it from me, but sometimes it's, it, it requires a bit of uh, establishing that trust um, before yeah. uh, taking that, that dive with them. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. it, um, I, have, I have one other, um, what I believe is a very interesting to- uh, topic and, and population um, that I'd love to discuss with you, and that's the neck pain in the older adult population. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, Again, I'll link yet another article in our, in our podcast here on a paper published in uh, co-authored in 2016. Uh, for those listening, it was titled Effectiveness of Physiotherapy for Seniors with Recurrent Headaches Associated with Neck Pain and Dysfunction. It was a randomized controlled trial. Um, and, and it appears that uh, cervical mobilization and a therapeutic exercise program um, were, were effective at reducing headache frequency uh, in patients diagnosed with either migraine, tension type, or cervicogenic or, or mixed type um, headache associated with neck pain. Um, I mean, first off, why did you choose to investigate this older adult, adult population? Uh, maybe why did you think it would be different than uh, the, the general adult population? Um, maybe if you could talk about that, that would be really helpful. Yeah, well, why, why the age group? I mean, we've got an ageing population um, for sure. And 
I suppose in a way, uh, I mean, they deserve the best quality of life. And I suppose we wanted to challenge some of the notions that, you know, older people automatically get pain and they should just put up with it and it's a normal phenomenon of ageing. And also that uh, things like active treatments such as manipulative therapy aren't so appropriate for chronic pain, you know, that, that people have had for years, etc. So I, I think it was our interesting quality of life and, and our seniors in the populations um, that, that made us concentrate on that. And also it was, um, this came out of a PhD uh, from a, a Thai uh, physio who did her PhD with us, uh, Surapun Utai Kup. So she had done her PhD and um, she, I mean, we'll have another thing on, on the differences in, in, musculos- in pain mechanisms in migraine and all that. Uh, but she had an interest in, in understanding the neck in older people with headache. And basically what she found was that um, a lot of them had comorbid um, musculoskeletal signs and symptoms etc so as you remember or note with that with that particular study one of the criterion or one of the criteria sorry were that the patient had to have musculoskeletal dysfunction that was associated with their neck pain and their headache so why while we found that we could decrease uh, people who are actually diagnosed with migraine or tension-type headache, they had to have cervical musculoskeletal uh, dysfunction as well. So th- that was the reason that we did it. And as far as the approach, there was not a lot of difference in the approaches. I mean, our exercises became a little bit more sophisticated, like, you know, 15 years down the track from the um, original cervicogenic headache trial uh, we we our, our exercises were a bit more streamlined i'm sure we knew we were what we were doing a lot more but they were basically the same principles of lower load which are pretty s- suitable for older people because they can do them and there's really no advert adverse effects and probably the only difference from the manipulative therapy point of view was that we only did low velocity mobilization we didn't do the high velocity on that age group. And that was just a uh, uh, probably a, a safety consideration and to make sure that we were, we were able to be inclusive of the people that we could have in the trial. But basically it was the same sort of exercise approach. So it rules out notions that you can't do things once the pain becomes chronic. You can do an awful lot for these patients. Um, that, that's that's good to hear, especially given that such a large portion of our of our patient population. Um, I I really want to uh, be cognizant of, of the the time I've taken up with you today and covered a lot of material and, and uh, I really appreciate taking the time out today to to speak with us and um, I, I'm hoping. Um, I'm hoping you can let us know if our listeners want to learn more about these topics or more about your work uh, is one of the best ways to to uh, look for your most recent textbook. How can they learn more about what you're doing? I think I think if they looked at the recent textbook, it's it's literally all there for them in in one consolidated uh, area. Um, otherwise, it's a 
a big search through publications. Mm-hmm. But the, the textbook does have, um, and it's the four of us who've written it, so you've got expertise from various things. But certainly as far as the exercise program, et cetera, is concerned, the assessment um, and the actual programs and their progression, it's, it's, it's pretty well detailed in, in that text. Okay, wonderful. That's that's on my list. <laughs> um, I mean, so I'd just like to thank you again for your time, Gwen. It was a pleasure to have you with us today. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We look forward to bringing your next guest in a few weeks. Uh, so bye for now, everyone.